The things that I think I am worst at in my daily life are often the things I am least happy to hear anyone else tell me about. I don't know if it's the same with you. But a really good example for me is like, you know, like being on time can sometimes be a little bit of a shaky proposition. I don't know if any of you have friends or you yourself live by this credo to say, you know, being early is on time, being on time is late, and being late is unacceptable. Do any of you sort of live by that code? Okay, so I have to remember that I got to work extra hard to be on time with Doug because Doug raised his hand. And Good on you for being that brave. Um, yeah, I've got lots of friends who are like that. That, you know, if I'm not five minutes early, I'm late. And I've sort of had the perspective for most of my life, you know, we all give ourselves about a five-minute window on either side of an appointment. Yeah, I'm from the Midwest where a goodbye takes 45 minutes, right? So, yeah, I kind of expect things are a little flexible when it comes to timing. But, you know, this could be a really dividing concept for people, right? If you have a bunch of people that you work with or that you're friends with that are late all the time and you follow that credo, it's going to get hard after a while. You get kind of annoyed. And so, you know, maybe we can tease people about it. We'll do it in front of people's backs, you know, to them. We'll tease them. We might say something behind their backs. Be like, oh, you know, here we go again. Look at the time. I'm glad I got coffee ahead of time because this is going to take a while. I mean, we've all been there. But you know, here's the thing. Even in our own frustration with that, it doesn't tend to mean that the person gets to where they need to go any earlier, Right? Somebody telling me that I uh, am not on time and that I'm late and, you know, what's going on with me, it it is not typically the motivating factor that will be the thing that I will then start to learn how to become on time. I recognize, of course, as someone who maybe is a little bit more flexible in in my times, that I do need to practice in terms of hospitality better ways of doing things. If I know that there's someone who really likes to be on time and I don't really care, it's a really good time for me to practice hospitality and endeavor to be a few minutes early. But in the midst of some sort of lecture or the judgment of my lack of being on time, it is far harder for me to process that reality. It's only about six hours later When I'm back in the comfort of my own schedule, do I say, yeah, maybe I should do a little better at that? And, you know, sometimes, like I mentioned to the the kids earlier, sometimes we can do that as a culture. How often have you heard when you're talking about people that are homeless, well, you know, it's because uh, they're lazy. You know, the reason why we see so many people who are homeless, well, you know, like they just... They drank themselves out of all their money, and now they're on the curb. And so why should we pay attention to their needs? You know, that's not unfamiliar. That's not anything new to us. In fact, I think most things that we think have a quote-unquote stigma around 
often can have the same effect on people, right? So one that I've spent a lot of time in my own career is mental illness, right? So a lot of times if somebody has schizophrenia and they're trying to do things in society, there's often this sort of sort of conversation back behind the person a little later, like, that boy ain't right. Something's not right there. So we kind of generate stigma around certain, certain cultural things. And then it kind of becomes this, this blame. It becomes deeper than just a circumstance. It actually becomes something about our own identities. And this is a point um, when our concepts of what is wrong and who is wrong can so often become so deeply toxic in our society. There's a therapist by the name of Ronald Potter Efron who's done a lot of work actually when it comes to shame and guilt as it pertains to working with people through uh, addiction to alcohol. And one of the things he says is he talks about guilt. And guilt as a concept lets us know when we've done something wrong. It's something we recognize that there's a transgression, a reaction to what is deemed an inappropriate action. You can understand, there are times when I legitimately feel guilty that I'm 15 minutes late to something that I thought I would be there on time. And so I might seek to rectify that going forward. So there's guilt, but then there's on another side that that Potter Efron talks about, and he talks about shame. The way he defines shame is one's shortcomings as a total being. That shame goes one step further than the action, but goes to the identity itself. I am late, therefore I am unreliable. I am untrustworthy. I am incapable of the basic functions of society. I am apparently incapable of even using a watch appropriately. I lack some sort of fundamental intelligence in order to be able to function in our society. Guilt versus shame. And sometimes toxic shame that goes too far causes some kind of paralysis, a faltering energy, escapism, withdrawal, including people-pleasing and hiding behind a mask, perfectionism, criticism, and rage. You know, if I'm 15 minutes late habitually... And suddenly I start to tell myself the story that I am incapable of being trustworthy, that I am a failure as an adult. I do not know how to do the basic functions of what society offers me. Chances are good. I'm going to start to fight against that, right? I may accept it, but, you know, I might be kind of mad about that. Of course, this is why our cultural implications about homelessness, like we talked about earlier, can be so dangerous. After a while, we can create cycles of shame. Right? So let's say you know, we know the economy right now is not heading in the, great, the greatest direction. But let's say, for instance, you are working in a field that steadily, as people might get more and more sick, you're going to have less and less people. And let's say you lose your job as a result of a recession. You lose your job and you get you you follow Dave Ramsey. You've got your three months of savings, but things continue to go by and now it's six months and now it's nine months. And then let's say on top of that, your spouse has a heart attack, and now that you don't have a job, 
You're not able to pay for that insurance. And so what would have been maybe a $500 hit six months ago is now a $5,000 hit. And you're already out of all the cash that you have. And now it gets harder to afford your mortgage. And maybe you were even thoughtful about not buying a $500,000 house when you only make $60,000 a year. But let's say you can't afford that and you can't afford the credit cards that you're trying to keep hoping that you'll find a job and you're fighting to find a job. You're so close and you can't. And so then you lose your home. This is a story of so many people back in 2009. You lose your home. Now you're at family promise. That's a very different story than you being lazy. You not knowing how to function in society. That's a different story. But yet, it's so easy for us to tell these stories of shame. There's a big difference between being guilty about a circumstance and feeling shame about one's identity. And I think that our ability to journey through Lent, to walk through this time to Easter with the companion of self-examination, and particularly penitent self-examination, one that we recognize our brokenness and our places where we do need to grow, means we really have to consider what it means to have good awareness of the contours of guilt and shame. In our gospel text today, there is so much to unpack about this issue. We hear so much about judgment in this text, right? The whole thing is basically about varying types of judgment, which judgment, if you think about it, is sort of an outward examination, right? We hear somebody's story and we say, therefore, based on what we have heard, we are going to examine what you've done and assess how we believe based on our cultural norms or our laws, how we should proceed. So I think we can take a lot from this outward examination and we can also apply it inwards in how we perceive ourselves. If you notice in the first part of the text with Nicodemus, we can already hear the strands of judgment. You temple guards really believe that guy. I mean, seriously. We are the Pharisees. We are well-educated. We know our texts, we know what's going on, and this guy's a fake. And the temple guards say, well, we've never heard anything like this before. And the Pharisees are like, that's right, because this is a bunch of garbage. We hear it over and over again. Well, temple guards, you've been deceived. You've been accursed. What you're hearing over here is crazy talk. We're just, let's just, yeah, we're not, we're not going to pay attention to you. You should have arrested Jesus. There's no such thing as a prophet coming out of Galilee. If you read the book of Jonah, you'd recognize that Jonah himself is from Galilee. So it's not even the truth that there are no prophets from Galilee. But boy, doesn't it help to bolster your argument if you're trying to push an argument about guilt and shame in a particular way to sort of hedge the truth as necessary in order to make sure that your point is well made? Yeah, there's no, there's no, you know, that guy, Jonah, I'm sure he actually grew up somewhere else. Like, it's not really accurate. The guards are dismissed simply because they're different. 
because they see things differently than the Pharisees. So somehow our concept of judgment might have something to do with the way that we view the stories and the narratives that we're told. That We want to live into one particular narrative, and boy, isn't it easy to project it onto others. And then, of course, we have this familiar text about the woman caught in adultery. You could tell right from the beginning, John tells us, the writer tells us, that this is a trap for Jesus. The law here, by the way, was to prescribe stoning only if she was a betrothed virgin, first off. But the thing that's more important here is that the man would have been stoned as well. There's no, takes two to tango. And we're only stoning one of the partners. So we're telling a story. We're bending the rules in order to pass a particular type of judgment. But Jesus does what's most important. And the core of what I think we can look at when we think about self-examination. Jesus seeks the heart and the care of the woman. Jesus neither casts judgment, nor does Jesus completely absolve the woman, if you notice. There is no, oh, you know, you didn't do anything, you're completely in the clear. No, it's, is anybody condemning you? And this word condemn in Greek means more specifically to pass a punitive judgment. To say, we have taken into account the evidence, and here's what we think about you. You have committed adultery, therefore you are deserving of death because what you have done is so grievous to us that your identity is meaningless. And we will destroy you as a result. Jesus says, is anybody doing that to you anymore? The woman says no. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. Your identity is not your brokenness. But there is some wisdom in recognizing when the circumstances are not going the way that it is ideal as you should live. And at the back end of this text, we see the Pharisees still continue to double down in finding ways to get to judgment on Jesus. Friends, I think of all the things we talk about in Lent, the things that we mentioned at Ash Wednesday, self-examination and penitence and almsgiving and, you know, and um, prayer and fasting. The one that's hardest is self-examination. And it's because in the midst of trying to do good examination, we contend with the voices of toxic shame that try to define our very identity in who we are. So we can have a tendency to deflect it. We can deflect it out, sort of like the Pharisees did, right? We have our narrative. We have our story. We're clearly in the right. And so therefore, those of us who are different are wrong. That would be like saying to somebody who doesn't agree with being or. How about this? It would be like me saying to Doug, who says being early is on time and being on time is late. It would be like me passing some sort of identity judgment on him 
simply because he likes that. Like, well, you know what? You don't care about people like me, do you? You don't care about the people who are late. Shame on you. It's easy to keep our own stories and then place them on others as opposed to taking a moment to say, hmm, maybe I should be a little bit more on time. Not because I'm a bad person. So we can deflect out. We can also deflect so deeply inwards where our opportunity for self-reflection actually becomes deeper judgment. It's a complete identity destruction. I am late, therefore I am a terrible person who can't be trusted, and therefore everything that I do is a waste. So we struggle to hear a better voice because like the Pharisees, we've made up our minds about judgment. But Jesus instead invites us to a bounded self-reflection. One that says that, yes, we are broken people, but we need not believe that it is the core of who we are. Because, friends, how can we expect anyone, including ourselves, to seriously reflect when boulders of condemnation are cocked back, ready to let fly? Do you think you're best under crisis? Yet there is something truly healthy about considering what we've done and what we've left undone. Again, this is why when we do our confession, that pardon is quickly coming right afterwards. Because in spite of having a moment to look at our own brokenness, there is healing and forgiveness and pardon on the other side and peace once we take it all into account. Friends, Lent reminds us that we are broken people, that we are sinful people, that we are dust, and to dust we will return. But if that was all that we were, why would Easter matter? Why would resurrection matter? Why would life after death matter if all we were was the brokenness that we carry? We can live without a shame that allows us to believe that it is in the final analysis not who we are, but instead we are beloved by a God who cares for us more than we will ever understand. And so what better time to have honest self-reflection of that brokenness knowing that you are not only your brokenness. Being late does not make someone untrustworthy. Being homeless is not indicative of somebody's worth. And the more that we confuse the two, the less likely we're able to receive the grace that is so given to us so freely. So friends, what we can give to ourselves and to one another in Lent is a space for good, honest self-reflection. A space that allows you to say you are broken, but immediately reminds you that that is not your whole identity. That there is no condemnation here. There is no punitive judgment leading to complete and total death because of your brokenness, because Jesus Christ has done it all. There is resurrection. 
So friends, take a moment. Think about the ways that you are broken. Come sit with me and we'll walk through it together. I'm happy to share the places where I'm very broken, not the least of which being not being on time all the time. But what gift is there to say to yourself in the midst of my brokenness? I am loved by the one who defeated death itself. Let's pray. Gracious God, help us to not be afraid of ourselves. Help us not to be afraid of others. Help us to truly believe all the words that we say. We believe you are a God of grace in the midst of our brokenness. 